This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frazier Productions. Welcome to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications, the leading woman-owned advertising communications firm in Southern California. At Frazier, we specialize in changing behaviors and positively impacting society with communications. We're now doing crisis communications and messaging for the Department of Public Health about COVID-19. I want to remind people to wear your face coverings and be safe distancing, which is six feet apart from people. The show, The Deciders, features leaders in their fields and change agents in their communities. I ask people to share their stories. And in this era of COVID-19 and the unfortunate incidents we've seen of police brutality, I wanted to focus in on police brutality and the protests that we're seeing. By the way, I attended a protest this weekend in Venice and was happy to be a part of the Black Lives Matter and learned a lot from the speakers. And I realized the peacefulness of these activities is so clear and evident in the intention. In my case, there were no police officers around, but we know there have been massive protests taking place across the country and here in Los Angeles and even around the world. But to get the police to understand and be held accountable and to fight racism, the big question as we move forward is what needs to change? How can the community be certain that justice is being served? Today, we're going to talk with Lisa Bloom, founder and owner of the largest and fastest growing civil rights law firm in the United States, the Bloom Firm. Lisa is an internationally recognized attorney who specializes in civil and human rights law and represents victims of violence, sexual harassment, race or sex discrimination, and sexual assault. But today we're going to talk specifically about police brutality, particularly against protesters. Lisa, welcome to The Deciders. Thank you so much, Renee. Great to be here. Lisa, let's start by talking about the crimes that you have been working on where the police have unfortunately engaged in brutal behavior against Mm -hmm. protesters. Talk to me a little bit about that so we understand what you're seeing and what you're being, what your understanding is about these protesters and how the police are handling the situations. Yes. So in the last few weeks, as we've seen this magnificent surge of activism against racism here in the United States and then going global, Uh, Unfortunately, we have seen police brutality in the very protests that are against police brutality. And I have had a number of people reach out to me specifically about the rubber bullets that are often being used against peaceful protesters in the U.S. Yesterday, I had a press conference with my client, Nia Love, who's a 29-year-old mom of two, a medical assistant, working during the COVID crisis, one of the healthcare people that we would be cheering for. And she went to her first demonstration of her life a couple of weeks ago in Sacramento, and she was shot in the face by the police with a rubber bullet. She's now blinded in one eye. It's a heartbreaking story, and she's decided to stand up against it and go public with her story. So yesterday, I, I... First time I went out of quarantine, I decided to imagine. Yes, and you flew on a plane. Oh my goodness! Yes. No, I drove. I drove to. Oh, you drove. Oh, good. Seven hour drive. You drove. Okay. Uh huh. And I, you know, I was very careful about wearing a mask and so forth. But anyway, we had a press conference outside of the very police station where her protest had started, and we believe it's one of the police officers in that station who shot and blinded her. And we were very pleased that uh, we got three 
California state legislators to join us at the press conference and to announce the bill that they proposed to ban rubber bullets. You know, rubber bullets are illegal in most countries in the world. For some reason, the U.S. police, we've given them this broad array of of tactics and weapons that maim and kill Americans. And it's just wrong. It's horrific. She's going to go the rest of her life with only one eye. Since we did the press conference, I've had a number of others reach out to me. And even before that, a man who was shot in the genitals and will no longer be able to have children. He's in horrific pain. Um, I mean, another young man, 21 years old, uh, shot in the face by police with rubber bullets. I mean, this has got to stop. The prote- our country was founded on protest. We protested right. the king and the British royalty. We ensured the, that the freedom right. of assembly right. in the First right. Amendment, our very First Amendment, the Bill of Rights. You know, not only are they peaceful protesters, they are historic, important protesters moving our country forward, like Dr. Martin Luther King or like Rosa Parks. And I believe that today's protesters will go down in tomorrow's history books, and we all must do whatever we can to support them. You know, you're right about uh, protest being a historic component. Um, and we, we had riots, of course, and some protests after the terrible incident with Rodney King. And uh, mm-hmm. we haven't seen enough change. And that's why people are so fed up. And, and we see so many 11 days of protests. I, I must ask about a rubber bullet. Uh, they must be pretty hard. They're, they're not soft mm-hmm. rubber, right? They don't bounce off. Right. The it sounds like it's they a good question. Because it's, yeah, because it sounds like a, a pencil eraser or something, right? But in fact, they're quite large. And they're rubber on the outside, very hard rubber, and metal on the inside. And when oh. they're pointed directly at someone's face or genitals, which for some reason the police seem to be doing a lot, even though it's completely a violation of their rules and tactics, it can cause tremendous damage. It's extremely painful. Uh, as I said in my client, Mia Lund's case, it took her eye out. There's another woman I'm speaking to right after this interview, uh, also shot in the face and lost an eye. Uh, from them. So, I mean, over and over again, this is happening. It's very damaging. There's also pepper bullets. Uh, which they shoot and spray out uh, as pepper spray, tear gas, uh, which is especially damaging uh, during the COVID uh, pandemic uh, because it causes people to cough and wheeze and some take off their masks and they're, you know, they're hacking right next to each other. I mean, it's, it's, right, it's ridiculous. Good. There's no need for not any good. of this. Not good at all. You know, I, I, I like to think of the Los Angeles police as more controlled, but uh, clearly I I see that uh, Connie Rice has talked about kind of a warrior mentality. Uh, And when that happens, you Mm -hmm. get the warrior culture, you get egregious behavior. What do you feel needs to be done? What what should be changed as a result? We should ban the rubber bullets, I'm hearing, right? Yes. Should they also be trained not to shoot people in the face? That seems wrong. Yes. So listen, first of all, I would I wish I could say that the LAPD were better, but I've had prior cases against them. We just got one of the biggest settlements of the year last year against the LAPD on behalf of a black family in South L.A. who they roughed up and harassed, including children, including special needs children, and they busted into their home. It was a terrible story. We ended up getting a very good result, but, you know, we wish it had never happened in the first place. I had another case last year against the LAPD on behalf of a female detective who was brutally sexually harassed, and nobody in LAPD helped her. So there's still a lot that remains to be done. As to what we need to do, yes, we need to ban rubber bullets. But we do, as you say, we need to get rid of this warrior mentality. Listen, I think part Mm -hmm. of the the problem is, is that we entrust too much to the police. 
And we don't need police to be doing mental health checks, for example. They're not, we can send social workers or social services people for that. We have taken basically every problem in society and decided that the police should take care of it. And it's, mm. it's not appropriate for them. If there is a violent crime or a violent encounter, I think the police are needed. For other situations, there are a lot of better uses of our tax dollars and resources. For peaceful protests, I, I don't think we need police at all. As you say, you were in Venice. There were no police. No problem. Everything was Nothing. fine, right? The, Everything the was organization fine. will generally take care of itself. And, you know, there were when, when she, some looters yeah, when she was in early on in this. But uh, right. we don't even know who they're from. Were they Black Lives Matter? Were they right-wing infiltrators? Were they just community people taking advantage? We don't know. Certainly in the last few days, it's overwhelmingly been peaceful. The whole time, it's overwhelmingly That's been right. peaceful. That's right. In the case of the woman in Sacramento, was there, was there looting in the middle of all of this? Could there have been any kind of confusion? On who she was? Um, no, there was no looting uh, in her around her. Uh, we are trying. You know, one of the things we've done by that pro the uh, press conference is asking people for video, but she says the police themselves were backing up. They were telling each other to back up. Perhaps there was some confusion that they were telling the protesters to back up. At any rate, she was backing up. She had decided it was time for her to leave, and she had turned her back and was walking away. Then she looked back to look for her younger brother, and that's when she got shot in the face. She was unarmed. She was not hostile to anyone. She's, she's not a hostile person. Um, and there is one video we saw of, of a police officer just indiscriminately shooting into the crowd. So, you know, I think we also need to have, there's been talk about abolishing qualified immunity, which is essentially the law that police are not individually responsible uh, when they commit these acts. The city will have to pay a judgment or a settlement, but not the individual. Why shouldn't the individual? There's no consequences for them individually. And what I've read is, you know, in the case of, uh, of George Floyd, that police officer who had his knee on this man had many, many other incidents. I think it was 13 but no consequences. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that so, um, awful? You know, in sexual harassment cases, for example, by comparison, the individual is liable for sexual harassment in the workplace as well as the employer. So I think individual responsibility would go a long way. Of course, criminal charges. But retraining, really, and training and de-escalation of situations. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, unless there is – the law is that unless there is a risk of great bodily harm or death, police are not allowed to use lethal force. And yet they do it all the time. Yeah, I was going to say, I certainly no great bodily harm during these protests. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do think what happens is the police get frustrated and uh, they allow their tempers to flare. No excuse at all. But all the more mm-hmm. reason training would be right, would be a part of that to get them to calm themselves down and realize the situation. Do you feel it's leadership also that's part of this or do you feel it's uh, more just a culture uh, in, the, well, in, the, in the police department? Well, I, I always think when there's a, a system-wide problem that it probably starts at the top and that leadership is important and that what's tolerated becomes, you know, very well-known immediately. You know, I also uh, am a student of uh, implicit racial bias, as you know from my book, Suspicion Nation, about the Trayvon Martin case, and implicit racial bias is a big part of it. You know, most of us, especially most of us white people, think that we are not racist. And we would be very offended if somebody said that we are racist. But it's not a matter of saying I'm not racist and then brushing it off because most of us are walking around with implicit biases that are really deeply buried within us. And there is a uh, cheat-proof, 
free test for implicit racial bias that you can take online from Harvard University. It takes about 15 minutes. Very good use of your time. About 80% of white people test for moderate or severe racial bias against African-Americans. And so do 50% of African-Americans test for racial bias against their own groups. And when I spoke about my book, Suspicion Nation, a couple of years ago all across the country, and especially like in black churches and black universities, black people would all nod their head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We know. Yeah, we're, they're well aware. And white people would be completely shocked. They had no idea. The good news is that once we are aware, we really can overcome. And there are ways that we can overcome simply by being aware. Doctors, for example, when they take the implicit bias test and they become aware of their biases against African-Americans, can work harder to make sure that they're spending as much time with their black patients, that they're referring them to specialists as often, um, and so forth. So all of us can stand to improve. But until we admit that there's a problem, that's not, not going to happen and isn't happening. That's right. You have to correct for it, and you can. And you're right. Implicit bias, unconscious bias, we all have it. It comes from how we grow up. Television shows we saw, the things our grandparents said, the environment we're in. And it, it, the, the important thing is recognizing it and being willing to acknowledge it and work to fight it. I want to talk more about um, Suspicion Nation and just explain to people, this is a book you wrote after the Trayvon Martin case, another example of police brutality and the actual uh, legal case where you saw the level of bias. Because I, I, I'd like also to talk about the terrible crimes we've been seeing, like uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and of course Trayvon Martin, and many others before them at the hands of police. What's the cause of that as you see it? I watched the entire trial of George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin, uh, when that happened back in 2013. And I was just appalled at what I was seeing. And I ended up writing the book, Suspicion Nation, the inside story of the Trayvon Martin injustice and why we continue to repeat it. And boy, I wish I had been wrong. But unfortunately, we continue to repeat it because the same patterns repeat over and over. One of the biggest ones is implicit bias that we were just talking about. So in the mm -hmm. Trayvon Martin case, uh, you know, he was a 17-year-old kid minding his own business, walking back from the store with Skittles and a fruit drink in his pocket. And George Zimmerman, a neighborhood watch guy, decided that he must be a criminal because of the color of his skin and followed him in the car. And then Trayvon got nervous and George Zimmerman got nervous. and There was an altercation and George Zimmerman shot and killed Trayvon Martin. And then there was no prosecution for what felt like a very long period of time, about a month. And the community rose up and then the entire country rose up and said, how is it possible that Trayvon's killer is not even being prosecuted? And after a lot of protests, all right, he got charged. But a charge is not the same thing as a conviction. And I'm very concerned today with the George Floyd killer that we are perhaps, I hope not, but perhaps repeating the same thing, that the community has risen up and now we have charges. And that's great. We have charges against the officer who killed him and charges against the three who were complicit, who failed to protect him. But charges are not a conviction and prosecutors have to believe in the case and they have to fight the case hard. And I'm a trial lawyer mm -hmm. myself. And when I watched that trial in the Trayvon Martin case and saw that there was no advocate for Trayvon in that courtroom, mm -hmm. uh, I was very concerned and I knew it would be an acquittal. And I said so on TV and then there was an acquittal. Now, in this case, we have a video. The video is pretty compelling. 
Um, but even in cases with videos like Eric Garner, the, the other I can't breathe case, uh, African-American mm-hmm. man killed by police on video. Ultimately, there were no charges even filed in that case. So even a video doesn't guarantee justice. So what is, what, what we really have to... Yeah. Is Sorry? it the police uh, be protecting each other? Is it the police union behind the yeah. scenes? Well, yeah. Yes. Listen, I mean, I believe in unions generally, but the police unions are so strong that the police officers, you know, they don't have to give a statement until they see the video. And, I mean, that's a problem because they can always change their story. Um, and we saw in Buffalo recently the the case with the 75-year-old man who was pushed to the ground and lied there and they're bleeding. Like we've all seen that video, right? And then 57 police officers in Buffalo quit because that officer had gotten suspended. So, I mean, if you need an example of how police officers stick together, even when mm-hmm. one of them does something terrible, that's it, right? Yeah. So yeah. we need, I think we need special prosecutors in these cases, not prosecutors who work with these same police every day. You know, that's they're like family with each other. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to zealously. are not in the co- cohorts of friends, because technically the police and the prosecutors are on the same side. Often the police yes. will come in and testify in a trial, right? And they're they're working together with the prosecutor to every day they work together. Yeah. Yes, I mean this would be you know like me going after a member of my own team. I mean it's not going to happen, right? It needs mm-hmm. to be somebody on the outside who's more objective. They also really have to understand the influence of race. In the Trayvon Martin case, you know there was so much racial bias in that case in the trial from a white woman who was called in as a witness to talk about two black burglars in the neighborhood six months earlier. What did that have to do with the case? It had nothing to do with Trayvon Martin or the case, but the implication was, well, there were these two black burglars and therefore Trayvon Martin's black, so he's a criminal too. Yeah, that was, right. He was one of them. I mean, right. it's not, not good. Offensive. Yeah. And I would have been on my feet doing everything I could to keep that out. And if the witness was allowed to testify, you know, cross-examination would have been, I'm sorry about your experience, ma'am, but did that have anything to do with Trayvon Martin? Answer no. no. Thank you. Right. And sit down, right? right. I mean, they failed right. to call the typical expert witnesses you would expect. And so I go through all this in my book because I felt that as a trial lawyer, I should, I really needed to tell the world why this case was such an injustice and I could see what was missing, right? So in the trials that we have coming up, you know, we have a number of police officers now charged in George Floyd's death, but in some others right. as well. And I hope that they're going to see it through effectively. I think that's very important. And then as you say, Renee, of course, you know, it's not really justice to clean up after the fact, after somebody's been killed. What we need to do is prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. Mm-hmm. There should be no, what they call, carotid uh, chokeholds. There's, you know, putting your knee on someone's neck should not be happening right. in the first place. Right. You know, they had a bunch of, they had four officers. They have a bunch of officers. There's no need to be doing that. No, um, you don't need them on the ground. There, there need to be guidelines for these men. I think that goes back to the training, men and women as police officers, right? And, and to, uh, but what I was shocked at is none of the three stopped him. You know, even the crowd was saying, don't do it, don't do it. The other officers didn't say, hey, let's ease up. Let's put him in the, in the car. How could that even happen? So, well, you know, you've, you've really put your finger on something that is so important, and that is that each of us is responsible for our own actions. And we cannot just say, well, my buddy's doing this. I'm going to stick with him. You know, that's 
appalling. I, I, I think about the Israeli army, and I you know, read recently how they have rules that even if your commander is doing something wrong and you're the subordinate officer, you have to call him out. You know, yeah. their rules are that each individual is responsible. And listen, I think that is so important that if just one of those other officers had said, hey, come on, ease up on the guy. He right. could be alive today. He should be alive today. I mean, yeah. he was suspected of passing a fake $20 bill, for God's sake. Not yeah. even a violent crime. He no wasn't violent. accused of no weapons on him. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that that his story is so outrageous and that video is so appalling that it's what's ignited this country and ignited the world. And, you know, hundreds of communities all over the country protesting. I'm so pleased that, like, small towns in Alabama that are 95% right. white, they're doing big right. Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, everybody's seeing right. the injustice of this. It is galvanizing people, and I think it will help people to see racial bias, like we just talked about, in these uh, unconscious bias. I think it's important for, for us to have an honest conversation. I have seen uh, in social media and among my colleagues a more frank conversation about how racial bias is built in and implicit bias is built into our culture. Uh, you know, women of my age were professional women admitting and talking about the fact that when they walk through a department store with a large bag, they feel like they're being watched because they might do shoplifting. Yes. Yes, it's which is not so right. Painful. Right. It, and, it I, you know, and I'll say one other thing. I, I, I think it's incumbent upon white people to talk to other white people about this and never to be silent about it. You know, I'm in a... I live in a rural area on the outskirts of L.A., and it's a mostly white neighborhood, and we have a neighborhood group chat that's usually about things like a lost dog or I have extra lemons. Does anybody want any? And somebody decided on the group chat to say some unkind things about the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, I really had a dilemma because I want to be friendly with all of my neighbors and I really just wanted to ignore it. And I thought, you know, no, I made a decision long ago that I have to speak up. And so I did. And I said, you know, it really hurts me. It makes me so sad to see somebody saying that Black Lives Matter is a joke. It's a very important movement. People are dying. This has gone on too long. And I think we should all be part of it and we should all use our skills whatever way we can to help the movement. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm representing a lot of peaceful protesters. So, wow. you know, good for you. How did they respond? Uh, well, actually, a number of people were very supportive. And then there's some people who, you know, are on the hard right. And they responded with a lot of conspiracy theory stuff about how George Soros and, and the Rothschilds are behind Black Lives Matter. About, I, Renee, are the Rothschilds even still a thing? I don't know. I don't, I didn't, I've never heard that. Right, right. <laughs> Well, I think, yes, you know, I guess the conspiracy, that uh, dark web, uh, yes, unfortunately, right. there's a whole following for that. The Q, right. you heard about that? Yeah. Q and QAnon, yeah, and then people yeah. chimed in, and then, but you know what, ultimately, I was glad I did it. I got a lot of private messages that were positive, but whether I got that or not, you know, I, I this is what's important. You did the right thing. We, you did the we right all thing. Have to, yeah. And we all have to do that. We have to stick up for our friends and neighbors, even if it's, you know, it makes us a little uncomfortable right now. By the way, we should be a little uncomfortable right now. Compare that to African-Americans thinking if I walked down the street, you know, I could be the victim of violence like Ahmaud yeah. Arbery right. or Breonna Taylor, children in her to, own home. Exactly. They have to tell their young boys, uh, you know, 
they have to have the talk about the fact that you'd be very kind to the police, you have your ID, keep your hands up. Uh, and and yeah. I have grown men, black men, who've been uh, telling me stories about how they've been stopped by the police, you know, at 45, yep. 50, and dressed in suits, you know, that they too have been, yep. uh, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, I have a client who's a, I have a client in a race discrimination case against a big tech company. He was a high-ranking executive there, and he's telling me, you know, when he goes jogging in the morning, his wife has to say to him very seriously, be careful. You know, because they live in a mostly white neighborhood, and if he's a black man running in a white neighborhood, you know, it it could be dangerous for him. I mean, these are the things that African Americans have to think about that white people don't have to worry about. White people don't. So we need to to be uncomfortable, as you said. I just want to, we're getting close to the end, Lisa. Your recommendation is more qualified immunity needs to be dropped, right? And we, a separate prosecutor, a special prosecutor. And then you talk yes, about racial training. bias training, ban rubber bullets, <laughs> take good big chunks of responsibilities away from police, like responding to mental health situations that are not dangerous, right? Uh, good advice. Helping good the advice. homeless. You know, we. I mean, some of it is us that we give them too many things. I agree. I agree, and we have to be. I think we have to be, be hold them accountable and look for these changes and sustain those changes in the law and uh, in the work that we do with each other so we can combat uh, racism even in our own lives and for the people that we know. There's the list, Renee. We'll make it happen. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, That was Lisa Bloom, folks. We learned a great deal about uh, police brutality and, unfortunately, these protesters in peaceful protests who were hit by rubber bullets that she's now representing. But we got some very good insights about how we can affect change through the police department and ourselves recognize implicit bias. This is a Harvard website. It's easy to find where you can take the test yourself. Well, thank you for listening. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these difficult situations and the value of the Black Lives Matter movement. Frazier Communications, who sponsors this, is a full-service advertising communications firm. You can contact us at FraserCommunications.com to learn more if you have an interest in using our services. And you can find our radio shows as podcasts at FraserCommunications.com. And thank you for listening. Have a good week ahead. Please wear face coverings, social distance, and be sure to wash your hands whenever you're outside and touch other things. Again, have a good week ahead. This is Dr. Muntu Davis, Los Angeles County Public Health Officer. Although anybody can become sick or die from COVID-19, studies show that the black community is at higher risk, as are people 65 years and older, people in nursing homes, and people with underlying health conditions. If you have to be outside, practice physical distancing. Keep six feet from others and wear a cloth face covering. Wash your hands often for at least 20 seconds. Let's keep our community safe. And to find health care, call 211. Brought to you by the L.A. County Department of Public Health. This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frazier Productions.